tremendous challenges and opportunities exist right now for our nation's water infrastructure. In this 15-minute podcast, the industry's top leaders and innovative minds share their knowledge and insights for ensuring our water systems are operating safely and efficiently. These discussions are designed to motivate and create vibrant 21st century water systems and the innovative workforce required to lead and operate them. This is 21st Century Water with your host, Aquasite founder and CEO, Mahesh Lunani. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's a real pleasure. I have today distinguished guest, David LaFrance, Chief Executive Officer of American Waterworks Association and formerly Chief Financial Officer of Denver Water. Good morning, David. Uh, good morning. It's great to see you again. Real pleasure. Glad to have you. So we'll talk with David about 360-degree view of the water sector and cover many aspects that influence the sector. I've known you for a long time. Never asked this question. You've had a very successful career in the water sector. What are your top two highlights to date, something you're very proud of? One, I'll go back to the very beginning of when I think my career launched in the water sector. I was actually just fresh out of college. I had been an intern for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and was fortunate enough to be picked up by them once I graduated. And the work that I was doing at the time was helping their economists figure out the most cost-effective way to clean up the rivers of the Pacific Northwest after the Mount St. Helens eruption. So it was interesting for me because the eruption happened before I even started in college, and I was a little bit befuddled as to how it took so long to clean up the rivers. Why didn't it already happen? Why wasn't it just so quick to clean up those rivers? So that was a pretty signature type project for a young budding professional to be part of. And the other thing I'd say, it's really the work that we're doing today from the American Water Works Association. I really think this is an important era for the water sector and we're in significant transformation and I'm excited about it, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. Great. So it sounds like your two favorite things are the two bookends of your career so far, which is amazing. When you started to where you are today. Well, the middle was pretty good, but we'll use the two bookends for now. That's right. Well, COVID is on everyone's mind. Obviously, we are in the midst of it. What impact COVID has or had on the water sector? Yeah, it's a great impact. One of the things that COVID has demonstrated, I think, to the population and to the water sector itself is that water professionals are really heroic people. And in the face of this health challenge, the water utilities and their suppliers kept water flowing and kept it coming to all of our houses. Water workers are classified as essential workers. And some utilities, not all, made adjustments in their operations so that their staff were sheltering in place at the treatment plants. And so as I heard about that, I just thought it was so remarkable because what that really meant is that those employees left their families so that they could help protect all of our families. And I just thought that sort of was a perfect example of how heroic they are. And so 96% of them suspended their shutoffs. And 71% suspended all late fees. And 84% started communicating more proactively with their customer base. And so what's fascinating about that is, while I watched people 
scurry around trying to find toilet paper and in a panic that there's no toilet paper on the shelves. No one was ever in a panic as to whether or not their water was safe to drink. Now, going to the sort of downstream sides of things, all of those actions, not all of them, but many of the operational actions came at a cost to utilities. They have some lost revenue. They've had to adjust capital plans and operations. AWWA became aware of this. And so we did a study with an organization that's a good partner of ours called Raftelis. We asked them to analyze what are the economics of this for utilities. This was pretty early on in the whole COVID situation. They came out with a groundbreaking report that talked about $14 billion of revenue was lost. And so that was a combination of things like the shutoffs, the multiplier effects for high unemployment, the postponement of capital programs. The big one was a shifting demand of water from business to residential. And the volumes and the businesses and industries tend to be bigger, so more revenue comes from there. So these are all things that utilities are now having to deal with. $14 billion is a big number, David. And the fact that during COVID, we've always talked about healthcare workers, and rightfully so. But right behind them is utility workers or water operations team ensuring that the water is flowing through the tap. So in that sense, it's a great story to be told. What I want to talk about is these frontline workers, as we go through the vaccination phase of COVID-19 life cycle, do you think they're being prioritized as one of the ones to come right after in the first wave of vaccination programs? Is there a point of view you have on this or is there a movement happening in this direction? Yeah, I'm glad that you recognize the essential nature of the utility workers. And overall, as frontline workers, I think they've been coping pretty well. In terms of the work, they are planners by nature, if you will. Utilities always plan. They always want to make sure that they can be in service during the most crucial times. As it comes to the awareness of the vaccines and things of that nature, if you go all the way back to March, when we were starting to shelter in place initially, EPA Administrator Wheeler sent a letter to all the governors telling them and reminding them that in all the essential workers that they had to think about, the water professionals were some of those essential workers. And then fast forward to today, as we're all anxiously awaiting the vaccine to be available, AWWA's members are forming these coalitions to write to their governors again and remind them again about the importance of the essential workers. And even the CDC has a playbook about the hierarchy of things as to who's more essential than others. And the good news is that water professionals are basically right behind the frontline healthcare providers. We're not the top most essential. The healthcare professionals are the most essential, but we're right behind them as non-healthcare workers that are essential to making sure people are safe. And that really makes sense to me because the provision of water itself is a PPE and we need it for hand washing, eating, showering, all of that. So it really is a PPE. It's amazing how you put the water another form of sanitization, so to speak, right? But talking about the letter, it's very interesting. In March of 2020, I received a letter from a number of our customers saying, 
because we are an important value chain provider in the water sector, they said, your company is classified as essential. And I remember sharing this letter to all our employees, the joy they felt in receiving that letter and seeing how important their work is to the value chain was enormous. And we are not even the frontline water operators. So I can really imagine the value of those kind of communications coming from the top. It really is sort of the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the fraternity and sorority of water professionals. It goes beyond their utility to everyone who's helping the utilities and is part of it. So let's move beyond COVID-19 because there's so many perspectives you have looking at the water sector. I want to talk about the public trust in the water sector. A recent poll that you had showed that we have a two-sided polarized view. In general, there's a good opinion, a high satisfaction about water. But when you unpack that data, there is a lower degree of satisfaction and trust from low-income minority groups. What is your opinion on this, and what does it take to reverse that trend? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me just start with this. These questions are ones that have been asked for a long time. And to the best of my knowledge, this is the first sort of research survey that's helping to provide answers to that. There's been a lot of talk about trust in the water sector, but I've been doing this for a while, and this is the first time I've seen something that gives me some analytics on the difference by different demographic groups. So it's really helpful for us. It gives us some quantification, and it really does help us know, hey, if we want to build trust in the water sector, we're good with these demographics, and we've got work to do with others. Specifically, this survey talked about the Black and Hispanic communities and additional work that we need to do with them. A couple of things that we're in the strategy process right now of figuring out how do we help, how do we move the needle on these things. We do think that communication is key. The communication really sort of needs to come from the utilities itself. We have a long legacy in the water utility business of being the silent service and that no news is good news. And do the good work for your community, but don't brag about it. But all of that's sort of changing. I'm not saying we have to go out and be a bunch of braggers, but we do have to let our communities know how important the work is that we're doing. And then we have metrics that support that idea too. So in this same survey, we have information that tells us that customers who remember receiving communications or sort of interactions with their utility, they have a better view of the satisfaction and the, of their water quality and their water service. So part of the key is going to be communicating and being part of a community and being out in your community and talking to them the way they want to be spoken to. And I don't mean the words you choose, but engaging with them in the way that they will appreciate your value the best. Also, communication isn't everything that we need to do. There's more. It also goes to the heart of the operations. And along with this issue of trust, there's a companion issue that is out there of how fair and equitable are the operations in terms of the different demographic groups and how communities evolve. And I think if we really focus on those things, communication and the way people like to be communicated to and providing equal service, then I think that will help lift all boats and increase the trust. So 
I do think most utilities, the utilities that I work with and I talk to, do feel like they're providing equal, fair service. But I think it's something we should just go back and look at and confirm it and make sure that we are doing that. And I think it'll help. There's no doubt in my mind, David, that if there is focus put on this, the utility leaders will pass that chasm. It's a matter of paying attention to the kinds of strategies that you outlined here. Let's move on to water rates. Are the water rates in the U.S. underrated? Where should it be? And how does it conflict with the water equity challenge we have, where we have a huge disparity between the haves and have-nots in the country, and it continues to increase? This is a issue that has existed for a long time. And I really think this is one of the big trends for the next era of water advancement. You may not know this, Mahesh, but after leaving the Corps of Engineers, my next step in my career was I became a rate analyst helping water and wastewater utilities. So this issue of affordability is something that I've been tracking for a long time. And it's easy for me to say that while intellectually it's always been interesting to me because my undergraduate degrees in economics and economists tend to like to study such things. But when I began that career, really water was so inexpensive. And that concern of it was priced below the cost and can you actually get to cost of service? Those were the big issues at that time. But you knew that as infrastructure replacement grew, water quality requirements grew, that the price was going to have to go up for water. And we're getting to the point now where it's becoming a more prominent part of everyone's budget. I would say for the masses, water is still pretty affordable as a commodity. But when you're looking at affordability issue, you're not really looking at the masses. You're looking at the lower income sectors. And the recognition that we have of that has also improved right now. So it used to be that the US EPA measured affordability at the median. They're reconsidering that, of course, because if half of your community has affordability issues, that's a problem that's hard to solve. So as that tension gets tighter, utilities have started to look for different ways to go about solving the problem. And utilities aren't necessarily great at what they might call the social engineering. They tend to focus more on the water engineering. But as community providers, some utilities and some communities are rallying around solutions. So customer assistance programs are becoming popular. Not everyone can do them. Discounts in bills, something called lifeline rates, which is a process that's been around for a long time, not used necessarily a lot, but it provides an adequate amount of water at a very reasonable price that everyone should be able to afford. There are other sort of pricing strategies that allow for discounts, yet still try to keep the price structure overall fair and equitable. Then there's other sort of operations that utilities will do, making sure that there aren't leaks behind the meter for their customers. And before it goes into the house to make sure you don't waste water and pay for that wasted water. And then other sort of billing structures like making monthly billing is one strategy. Some utilities don't bill on a monthly basis, or there's something called levelized billing where most people have to pay more in the summer than in the wintertime because they use more water in the summer. And some utilities will allow them to simply pay 
an average amount throughout the entire year. So there's a lot of good work being done on affordability, but it is something that's growing in importance and more solutions are needed. It's a science of in itself, the rate setting process, the strategies. Let's move on. The sector organization in the country, in the U.S. in general specifically, it's highly fragmented, organically grown, right? It comes with its own pros and cons because of the way the structure is. What do you think would be the drivers or trends in the reorganization of the sector? This is another one of those big issues that is emerging as a concern today. In part, it emerges from the concern of what we just talked about, right? In a rising cost business, how do utilities continue to find economies of scale in their production to make sure that they can provide the service at the lowest possible cost? And that's really hard because of the local culture that water utilities have. You oftentimes hear people say, oh, water is so local. And that has to do with watersheds and aquifers, but also a community spirit of pride of owning your own water and owning your own destiny. There's also this huge mega trend of people moving to the big urban centers from the rural areas. So there's an out-migration from the rural areas making it harder. And this rural-urban tension has emerged. I've hypothesized, and I will be honest that nobody's really picking up on this hypothesis that I have, but that COVID may actually reverse that to some extent. As we all search for more space, right? More safe space to do our activities. I think that could have some impact on a slowing or a reversing of the mega trend of urbanization to ruralization. There's over 50,000 water utilities. It's easy to say that's too many. I don't really know what the right number is of that either. And I'll come back to that here in the back part of this comment. I do think we need to find ways to increase the economies of scale. And the reason for that is because it helps with the cost recovery. Also, if you expand the concept of economies of scale some, it's not just about the money. It's about the operations. It's about the knowledge. It's about not having duplicate technology systems when you simply can share a technology system. I think for local water utilities, there's this fear that they have to connect physically to gain economies of scale. I do think that gains more economies of scale, but you can get initial economies of scale by sharing governance, billing systems, technology systems, things of that nature. There's also forms of sharing. Utilities are really good at having emergency interconnects, but that's just for emergencies, but making it more permanent, making municipal partnerships. We talk about PPP, public-private partnerships, but it could be public partnerships as well. So we should think about how do municipal utilities help municipal utilities regionally, creating regional partnerships. These are forms of consolidation. Another one which a lot of AWWA members are part of is private partnerships. So there's several great, large investor-owned water utilities that specialize in helping the smaller rural areas and bringing with them economies of scale. So I think all of these are forms that will happen. I do think that market pressure will help bring it. But again, 
I mentioned this earlier, governance is going to be key. It's going to require some visionary governance to find solutions to this challenge. From AWWA's perspective, I said I'd get back to where we view this. We feel that we have a responsibility to build management, engineering, financial capacity in all utilities, water utilities specifically, wastewater utilities as well, to help build that sort of capacity, irrespective of their governance form, their size. We just want to help them with best practices. We try to make sure that access to this information is affordable for them based upon whatever their size is. So if you're bigger and stronger, you pay a little bit more for the access with AWWA and the membership with AWWA than if you're smaller and have less financial resources. Our real goal isn't what your governance structure is, whether you're investor-owned, municipal-owned, big, small, rural, urban. Our goal is to make sure you have the access to the information to do the best possible job to protect the public's health. It's fascinating for someone like me that loves solving problems. You just outlined so many challenges and opportunities and strategies and actions. I'm just salivating here, sitting under the microphone. Let's switch gears. You cannot talk about water sector without not talking about regulations. And most people don't get excited about regulations, but I want to ask the question anyway. Are there certain regulations you're most excited about? And what would that be? Yeah, I mean, the idea of being excited about regulations to some is maybe an oxymoron, right? But let's talk about that. And then let's go back to what you asked me in the very beginning, which is what are things that I'm proud of? Well, one of them, I'm not, well, actually, I guess I'm proud of the regulation too. But one of the biggest regulations that's coming out, it's been around, but it's going to be updated is the lead and copper rule. And one of the things that I'm most proud about for the American Water Works Association is the strong stance that we've taken in the need to remove lead service lines and the importance of removing lead service lines. The lead and copper rule is a big challenge. Success in the lead and copper rule will help protect the public's health, and that is a priority to the American Water Works Association. And I think we're on the cusp of solving that problem. Now, AWWA's board, I report to a board of 61 people. And after the Flint situation or the Flint water crisis occurred, and we started focusing in on lead, that sort of lead and water that got rejuvenated, unanimously, the AWWA board voted in support of recommendations from a group called the NIDWAC. And those recommendations had to do with improvements to the lead and copper rule. And I was really proud of them. I mean, 60 of them at the time, we've grown by one since then, but 60 of them at the time voted for supporting this. And AWWA has quickly taken steps to get information out to the utilities on how do you go about finding all the lead service lines? How do you communicate to your customers about the dangers of lead? How do you test for lead to see if you're concerned about that? In fact, Green Bay just announced that they pulled out the last lead service line that is in their community. I live in Denver, Colorado, and Denver Water, my former employer, is actively communicating all the time. I get emails and text messages from them about their lead service line program, and they were offering free testing for their customers if they wanted to be tested initially. So it's going to sound funny to say this, but this is an exciting time for the water sector to make 
measurable improvements in improving water by removing lead. Another big concern, though, that's out there, and I think the approach to it's very different, is PFAS. We've all heard about PFAS. Five years ago, no one would have known that those four letters meant anything. It's come on very quickly, although it's been around for a lot longer than that, but in the public's awareness. One fundamental difference is, and I think it may be the beginning of some new trends, is that the regulations associated with PFAS are coming faster from states than they are from the federal government. And it's because I think the states are anxious about how the federal government is approaching these things. They didn't want to sit around and wait for it. So that introduces a whole variety of new issues and tensions again, one of which is the tension of having science-based information for setting regulations. And AWWA, of course, would support science-based regulation. I think I would add to science-based without undue delay, you can always have more and more science, but there's a point at which you have enough to make a good recommendation for the public's health. So I think those are two of the big regulations that are in front of us right now that we're grappling with and trying to solve. Right. Both lead and PFAS really operate at the intersection of water and public health in that sense. Really important topics. Moving on, water sector supply chain, the manufacturers, the consultant, the technology providers, the O&M providers, very critical overall. You can't just ignore them. They're important for the service of the entire industry. What do you think are the key trends going on in that space? And what is your advice on how to be a winner in this space? That's from the commercial angle, commercial side of the business. What's your advice to that group or that supply chain? Well, first, you're absolutely correct that the supply chain, the people who support the utilities, critical in every way. The winners, I doubt that this will surprise you, but the winners will be the ones who spend the time to make sure that they understand the problems that the water utilities are facing and listen to their needs of the utilities and provide solutions that address that. That's probably not a surprise to anybody. It's just tried and true approaches, and I don't see that changing. I also don't see anything changing in terms of the importance of partnering with utilities, right? So that doesn't mean just showing up with a box of donuts to make a pitch about your new product or new service. It means really being with them and being their partner. I oftentimes say that the issues of water come down to three things. They come down to quality, quantity, and efficiency. So the quality of your water the quantity of your water, and the efficiency of your water. And that's where I think the supply chain and service providers, consultants, and especially technologists can help with that. So let me talk a little bit about each one of those quickly. Efficiency is going to be critical because efficiency is what helps them do more with less and to save money. In particular, I see technology being a big part of that. The modern-day workforce of a water utility is going to be technology-dependent, whereas the workforces actually not that long ago were not technology-dependent. The quality of water. So with more regulations coming out, with the ability to measure more contaminants in water, solutions at the treatment plant and the people who can partner with the utilities for that are going to be critical 
in part because that helps to save costs. How can you operationalize your utility to save costs as opposed to building new capital investments to save costs and to improve treatment? And then the third one, of course, is do you have the right quantity of water to serve growing communities? And there, again, technology becomes part of the strategy and innovation becomes part of the strategy. So innovating to recycling water, that's going to be important. And also water efficiency, things like conservation and water loss control. These are all the things that are growing. I really see water loss control and conservation being the step number one when you're trying to increase your supply. It's water you've already have, so it's the best cost water for increasing your supply. And reuse is not just something for drought-ridden areas anymore. It's becoming more and more common as we look across the water sector as a whole. Well, that's a great group of advice for the supply chain of the sector. Let's talk about workforce. We cannot talk about a 360-degree view of water sector without workforce. Now, I didn't come from this sector. I've been in this sector now for several years. And I can tell you that it is not the top choice for the best and brightest. Now, let me clarify. It doesn't mean there's no best and brightest in the sector, but it's simply other sectors are more attractive. It might be just slow nature of things. It kind of wears down on people saying, hey, I got only X productive years. And if I have another sector responding to me faster, maybe that's where I should spend the time. And that's true in general. I can tell you from so many young people that I've interviewed, what is your perspective on the workforce of the future? And how does the sector attract, right, at least in the top five or top 10 sectors for the graduating students, so to speak? Yeah, well, we are faced with what is commonly referred to as the silver tsunami, and that is all the gray-haired people becoming or already are at retirement age. And so for a long time, this has been a concern, the knowledge leaving from these seasoned professionals and the need to replace them with the next generation. So I don't disagree with your observation. And it does create some motivation for people like the American Water Works Association to do certain things. But let me also talk about the strengths of the sector and talk a little bit about what I see in this next generation and why water is perfect for them. So they tend to care about the environment. They tend to care about the public health. And they tend to care about their communities. And they're very loyal to all three of those things. And you can do those If you're a water professional, drinking water, a wastewater, a reuse water, storm water, all of those sort of urban and rural total water issues, you can do those and you can be part of something that's meaningful. They also care about technology. And as you know, Mahesh, technology is something that is becoming essential in the water sector. And if you had to pick a sector where there's a gap to fill with technology, I think the water sector is a pretty good place to come and do that. So if you are a technology provider and you're a young person in the technology field, you can make real meaningful change in this sector by just doing the things that you love to do. So I think we're also going to be great in attracting people that way. In part, that's because the water sector is going to be more mobile It already is growing to be more mobile, and we're going to use technologies in ways that I think we couldn't even think about those ways five years ago. We were dreaming about them, and now they're reality. To foster 
awareness with the young professionals and with students in the universities about what it means to be a water professional. And that is really, I think, the key to get the information to the next generation early on. It's not the same as elementary school educational opportunities, but it is an important strategy. And I'm going to give you one key example. In this month's Time magazine, on the cover, Time has named its first kid of the year. And it is an AWWA member. Her name is Gitanjali. She lives here in Colorado. And she invented a device that will tell you if you have lead in water. And she has just amazing, amazing amount of knowledge. She's kind of scary because in a way, when you talk to her, you're getting this high-powered scientist and then you get this 15-year-old girl, right? So she bridges this gap really well. But she's really busy helping build STEM in her schools and engaging women in the future of science, not necessarily water, but science. Water tends to be her passion. So I see a bright future for the next generation of workforces, especially when I talk to people like Atanjali. I love your answer. There are four key words you said, David. The next generation care for climate, environment, they care for communities, care for public health, and they care for technology. So here's my challenge to you. Because the way you sold me on this, the top 200 universities, don't go to engineering colleges. Of course, everybody goes to higher engineering colleges. Go to the halls of the MBA schools and go to the halls of computer science. Sell them on this pitch because those will actually, in addition, will move the industry, right? That's where I think the opportunity is. All right. Challenge accepted. I would add one other, though, is that just thinking of utilities, not even including the other service providers, but the professional needs of utilities are not just engineering anymore. So it's a broad, diverse types of professionals. And when you think about the coursework at the undergraduate level, when I went to college, you didn't get a degree in environmental science. Today, you get a degree in environmental science. And then the other sort of thing I'd put up there for people to look at is American Water Works Association is the largest water association in the world. And its CEO is not an engineer. Its CEO has an undergraduate degree in economics and has an MBA. Now, I have a lot of history working with engineers and with water professionals, and that has been helpful for me. But the diversity of skills is multiplying in the water sector, right? Technologists like you used to be support, and now you're helping to drive the business strategy. So it is changing, and it's changing in exciting ways. So I'm hopeful that the next generation will see that and want to come be part of it. Oh, that's a great point, that the skill mix of what's required in the sector is going to be a different skill mix 10 years from now to what it was 10 years ago. Correct. So that's a fascinating insight. I want to wrap this discussion up because we have had some terrific conversation. I start off with a personal question. I want to end with a personal question. What is your resolution for 2021? Well, I'll keep my answer to the professional level, right? AWWA has a brand new strategic plan. It focuses on achieving some goals by 2025. Two of them are very energizing for me. So I will be focusing on those. First one is advancing diversity and inclusion. That has multiple layers to it, multiple challenges, but this is one of those things that 
I also think is critical to the future of water and critical to this sector, to the employment by the sector, to AWWA. And so I'm excited to join with other members of AWWA and in particular AWWA's Diversity and Member Inclusion Committee to help chart out the strategies for advancing diversity and inclusion. The second one is, we've spent a lot of time talking about it, strengthening the public's trust in water. Now, I've spent a career trying to do that, but I'm looking forward to doing it in different ways. And again, that's going to require partnering with our utilities and our volunteers at the American Water Works Association and government officials. You can go out and say, you have to go earn people's trust. But really, that's the act of presenting yourself as being trustworthy. Trust is created when the other person gives you their trust. And the best thing you can do is to try and be trustworthy. So I will definitely be working on being trustworthy in 2021. That's an outstanding resolution. So David, I'm just energized listening to you, charged up as if 400 horsepower have been added to me, just having this conversation with you. So I'm excited. I'm thankful for you being part of this discussion. Here we go. This is a 360-degree view of the water sector from David LaFrance. Thanks, David. Thank you, Mahesh. Join host and Aquasite founder and CEO Mahesh Lunani again next month for another episode of 21st Century Water. Subscribe for free in Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.